podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 256, Control the Plane and Don't Hit Anything. You know, whether you're flying recreationally or professionally, there's two important goals you should always keep in mind, and that's to control the plane and not hit anything. You know, I tell that to my students all the time uh, when I was instructing, and those are two really big goals. But these goals include various skills and philosophies we use while flying an aircraft. So today we're going to discuss this and how you can better control the plane and, of course, not hit anything. And uh, it's an especially relevant topic right now because of COVID-19. A lot of us haven't been flying and uh, just coming back to flying again, and uh, we need to go back and Try to master the most basic flying skills. Let's do the pre-flight. But you know, before we get started, I do want to say hello to everybody here. Joining us this evening is uh, Tom Frick. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Carl. And Sean Moody. Good evening. Sean Moody, welcome. Good evening. Good to be with y'all. Eric Crump, welcome to the show. Howdy, howdy. And Herrick hasn't been on in a while. We're so happy to have you on this evening. Um, it's good to have you back, that's for sure. And also, Bill English, welcome back. And good evening. Good to be back. We're all, and I'm saying good evening because I'm here, and, uh, and it's late at night. We're ready for a podcast, and there's some exciting things going on in the world of aviation. So, guys, before we start talking about all this and our topic this evening, I do have a couple, you know, announcements from our sponsors and a couple of announcements first of all if you like the podcast you want to help support us it's really easy go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash patron help us out every dollar we raise we put one dollar towards purchasing a scholarships guide for somebody and that's through our pay it forward campaign you can look into that from our sponsor aviationcareerspodcast.com slash pay it forward but please do check it out uh, just one dollar a month and after 10 months we're giving away a scholarships guide because of you and that could cause somebody to get their rating or their degree and move forward in their career in their life but we have another announcement too for those of you that have well maybe missed flying and really want to come back to the air show circuit. Something exciting is happening in December, December 4th, Friday, and also Saturday, December 5th. Sun and Fun is having a holiday flying festival and car show. And that's going to be for two days. Starts at 1 p.m. on the 4th and goes till 7 p.m. Then Saturday from 9 to 4. It's going to be really cool because it's not just the car show. They're going to have like a 5K. They're going to have a balloon launch. They're going to have all sorts of neat stuff for people of all different ages. Who doesn't want to see antique airplanes, antique cars? Also, uh, another quick announcement. Uh, Some people are confused on the date of this, but on Saturday, on Saturday, December 5th at 10 in the morning, we're going to have a general aviation town hall. And the ACE president, CEO, John Light's Lean House will be on and also... AOPA's president, Mark Baker, and the president of EAA, uh, Jack Pelton, will also be joining us. Best way to find out more about that is flysnf.org. Big shout-out to the folks over at Sun and Fun Radio. 
Uh, you can actually listen to some of the things that they're putting out on Sun and Fun Radio and also some of the past interviews we've done. And there's a, a big chance that you'll probably hear somebody from Stuck Mike Avcast or Aviation Careers Podcast on that. Uh, and you can stream that live, liveatc.net slash SNF. So to find out more about the car show and the Sun and Fun Holiday Fly-In Festival and Car Show, go to flysnf.org. And we really want to promote the folks over there at Sun and Fun Radio. It's what we do here at Stuck Mike Avcast. So liveatc.net slash SNF. Really easy to find. Well, let's move on to the cruise flight. Now entering cruise flight. So we're talking today about controlling the plane and, and not hitting anything. And that's it sounds simple, but with with that, I think we could get rid of over 90% of the accidents, obviously. Uh, we really have to concentrate on aircraft control and trying to avoid any collisions with terrain, vehicles, etc. One of the things that we do you know, when we're aviators and we learn when we're aviators is we start with that aviate, navigate, and communicate mantra. And that's a way that we can prioritize things. But there's times when we need more than just that. We have to internalize that and not just talking about it. And one of the things that we're finding now in this whole pandemic, and it happens when people stop flying, and we're seeing that throughout general aviation, is that we see more accidents, incidents, uh, in even people that are dropping out because they're afraid of one. Well, there's ways that we can actually hopefully maybe promote the general aviation industry and promote you to start getting back into flying and also do it safely. And that's the most important thing. So let's talk a little bit about this. And, uh, you know, Eric, that whole, uh, I want to ask you real quickly, because you, you're kind of in that, that collegiate environment, uh, aviate, navigate, communicate mantra. As far as what has happened here, because you're, you have so many students going through, have you seen, uh, this, these challenges of people having issues coming back from flying or not flying for a while? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So when everything sort of hit the skids in March, mid-March, late March, um, we shut flight training down uh, effective April 1st. It was a cruel April Fool's Day joke, but it was real. Um, and we didn't resume flight training until the 15th of June. So, um, you know, we had two and a half months go by where our students weren't flying. And when everybody came back, um, it, it was an interesting thing. So instead of just picking up at the last lesson where everybody left, um, we thought it was important um, to basically re-standardize everybody. So all the flight instructors went back through standardization training, which the FA only requires they do it every year under Part 141, but we re-standardized everybody anyway. And then when we brought all the students back, we re-standardized all of them. And it's amazing. I mean, you know that it's true, but when you see it happen on that kind of scale, the, the amount that those physical skills degrade over a short period of time is, is extreme. But more important than that, and maybe the things we take for granted, are those soft skills like collision avoidance, like uh, clearing turns before you start maneuvers, right? Um, and as the airspace, particularly here in Central Florida, started to get flooded with more and more aircraft as people were coming back, um, we started seeing a lot of uh, students reporting, hey, like uh, we were in the middle of a clearing turn and saw another aircraft you know, just off the, uh, just off the wing and you know, changed our altitude and changed our position. Um, and it's not like that stuff doesn't happen anyway. It's just to your point, Carl. I think when, when we have a hiatus like that, 
when we come back, we're so focused on the physical flying skills. I hope I still remember the stick and rudder stuff, which is important, sure. But those soft skills, like looking outside the airplane instead of staring at the flight instruments, that we know those things, but we uh, that stuff degrades too. When we're looking outside the airplane and trying to see and avoid, um, those are, like you said, some of those soft skills, clearing turns, etc. One One thing that I think that degrades quickly is our ability to make decisions but i think a part of that can be attributed somewhat and i'd like to kind of think outside the box here because our our degradation of our flying skills you know our, our currency our proficiency because i think what happens is whether we think we are proficient or not we actually those skills start diminishing and we have to put more brain energy or more energy towards the actual physical flying, which means that we take away from like those soft skills you, you talked about. And that's where we talk about currency and proficiency. Um, I know that now, especially at some of the airlines, this whole extension of the 90-day rule has been talked about <laughs> quite a bit and been reduced because of that. Because, uh, again, going back to that, we, we see that those physical skills come back quickly, um, but during that period of bringing those physical skills back, we degrade some of those other soft skills like you talked about. So are you current or are you proficient? I think that's kind of where we're going with that is, is the difference between currency and proficiency. And uh, currency is more of an FAA term, and uh, it means that you're legal in my mind. Truly, true proficiency is like what you were talking about, Eric. And one, one thing that I think that we need to, focus on it's not just uh, it's everybody in all the different parts of the industries we talked about that with flying skills uh, we had a whole 737 uh, series that we did and we talk about the proficiency in decision making and that is huge because you know most of our flying uh, I hope you agree Eric, with that Eric is is more decisions and making decisions and actually this whole loop of decision making process like the OODA loop that we talk about uh, more so than just a physical flying. Yeah, I've said it an, a number of times, and sometimes um, when you're talking to a new student, maybe to a family who's thinking about you know entering into uh, professional aviation training, I, I tell them, I said, you know, flying's not hard. <laughs> it's really not. It um, flying the airplane in and of itself is really not that complicated if you can divide your attention a little bit. You know, if you can do that pat your head and rub your belly thing, uh, which I can't do, but I can fly an airplane. If you if you have that division of attention capability, you can probably fly the airplane. The skill comes in with the, the number and the scope and the uh, pace of the decisions that we're constantly having to make and being prepared for. And to the whole aviate, navigate, communicate thing, it's, and I see this sometimes in evaluation checks where you see the pilot struggling to keep up with the airplane um and in a debrief whether depending no matter how the flight goes in the debrief i'm always going to bring up and say um you, you were struggling to keep up with the airplane but i need you to be 30 minutes ahead of the airplane um it's not enough that we're just sort of holding on to the tail for for dear life you know hoping we make it to the to the ground in one piece we, we really we've got to get to the place where we're ahead of where the airplane's going to be and we can predict and be proactive rather than just being reactive. That's that's where we start to get behind the airplane, and quite frankly, that's where we start to miss those cues that if we were outside the airplane watching someone else do it, we'd be like, wake up, wake up, something bad's about to happen. 
Um, and so that's that's the focus. It's staying ahead of the airplane. But with that said, Eric, I mean, how do you stay ahead of the airplane? How do you get that? How do you how do you make yourself go ahead? <laughs> as of the much airplane? as I hate to agree with you, Carl, um, you know, there's a there is a definitive difference between being current and proficient in an airplane. Um, and I and I know a lot of pilots who are um, like, okay, I'm current now. I'm good to go. Um, I got that last landing or whatever. And it's the same argument. I think we've talked about this here before is like the concept of the practical test, right? The, the FAA's testing standard is the minimum acceptable standard for you to earn a pilot certificate. So we really shouldn't aim for the testing standard because you can be this bad and still be a pilot. That's what the testing standard is. That's what currency is. Like you can be this this not proficient and still be able to legally fly the airplane. What we need to shoot for is better than the testing standard, better than the minimum currency standard. And that doesn't always mean that we have to, you know, get in an airplane and log some flight hours. We should, but there's a number of things we can do either with simulation or just studying, you know, like just because you got the pilot certificate doesn't mean those books aren't still there. That you can't pick them up and still review things and keep your brain sharp too, especially during a period like what we went through, where we were, you know, effectively grounded. Um, we were reminding students um, every other day and actually issuing study assignments to people while we were grounded. Like keep your keep your knowledge going, keep your brain in the game, so that you're not just walking back into this thing after a cold turkey break. But that proficiency is a very elusive term, I think, because how do we define it? Um, how do we define it amongst ourselves and individually uh, as a pilot group and also, you know, as a pilot? So that's where, for instance, I'll give you an example. I, I was current, um, but I wasn't proficient when I went back to work flying uh for the airlines. And I was like, holy cow, I'm, I'm behind on certain things here. Not the physical part of flying. It was all the other things, all the buttonology and that kind of thing. And that was really a, a huge eye opener. And to be honest with you, it kind of slapped me upside the head. And I was a little, uh, slightly overconfident in myself that I'd be able to come back and just start flicking switches, pushing buttons and doing it in the right order and found out that I was, I was like swimming in molasses, you know, for not for the actual physical flying part of it. So that term proficiency, how do we, how do we, how do we define that, Eric? Well, that's a great question, Carl. Um, and honestly, I think currency is easy because you can find it in a regulation, right? Like it's, it's black and white. This is the standard. Um, and I think currency is going to have a different definition for every pilot in the same way that personal minimums has a different definition for every pilot, which, I mean, quite frankly, personal minimums are based on proficiency, right? The more, the more you devote yourself to building and retaining your skills, in theory, um, the, um, the less restrictive your personal minimums are going to be if you're being honest with yourself. And I think, um, to your point, Carl, the, the first step is... Um, are you actually shooting for proficiency? Do you, are you trying to be better than the minimum? I think that's the first step in the process. And then defining what proficiency is, to me, um, goes back to a very simple statement, but it is powerful. 
when I'm operating the aircraft, I need to be, I have to always have positive aircraft control where the successful outcome of the flight is never in doubt. And if I can be honest with myself and say, I was positively in control of the airplane, not the airplane went there and I, I got lucky, um, and that the successful outcome of the flight was never in doubt, then at that point, I've reached the desired level of proficiency that I need to have for myself. My standard of proficiency may be different um, because of the certificate that I hold, the type of flying that I do, um, or the expectations if I'm doing it for a job or for a hobby. Not that everybody shouldn't be concerned about proficiency, um, but not everybody's shooting a Cat 3 ILS you know, to minimums on a regular basis either. You know, so it's it's the the standard I think is is dependent upon the pilot and ultimately based on the pilot's intention um, of of safety and of pushing themselves to be better than the minimum. But where that marker is, I I think that's up to the individual pilot to determine. Um, I just I think we do need to be honest with ourselves um, and ultimately shoot for you know. Uh, keep the airplane under control and don't hit anything. But, I mean, it's a simple, it's a simple baseline, right? But, but there's some truth in that too. Yeah, I'm glad I pressed you on this, Eric, because that was a great answer. Um, we really have to evaluate the environment where we're operating, uh, what type of certificate we're operating under. Um, so the proficiency can come in many forms, and it can come in many yeah, different. I feel like Carl that you know my long hiatus from the podcast has caused a um, a grilling. Guys, are you, were you noticing that? that yeah, yeah. I, I feel I'm being unfairly <laughs> I, tested. I put you to the wall, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and you I did know, a great job. And Bill and Sean and Tom are just sitting there like, yep, Eric's getting it, but I'm not going to step in there. <laughs> well, I'm not going to get his back. The poor guy's not, not, not for long, though. But I, I, uh, I, will thank you. I will thank you, though, Eric. You did a fine job. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting back and nodding and saying, yeah, that. <laughs> They're, they're like I've the poor missed guy. you guys so much. Oh my gosh, Eric, we missed you too, and it's it's awesome having you back on. That's for sure. Um, and uh, speaking of which, anyway, I shouldn't say this, but this is a big surprise. We're gonna have someone else back on for, uh, coming up in some of the episodes. It's like it's like it's like the coming home uh, kind of podcast here. People leave stuck, Mike, but they come back. It's a reunion show. Yes, it is, and uh, the reunion continues and continues. Uh, but uh, yeah, Eric, I wanted to push you on that because I knew you're going to come up with this great answer, and that's why, as far as proficiency was concerned, I think it's so important. Um, but now let's let's kind of move on to some of the lighter parts because I think that's the hardest thing to talk about: currency and proficiency. Uh, let's talk about the the controlling of the airplane, a little more practical sense. Um, going to the the little things in life, like crosswind practice. Uh, Eric, I know in your school and and in many other places, we have limitations on our students. And it's in their syllabus. It's on uh, a card that's written in the office a lot of times that tells you you have that limit. Um, but what is our personal limit on crosswinds? Well, again, that goes da- back to the pr- proficiency and the way you get proficient, especially in crosswinds. That's one of those physical things you have to do often. Um, so let's talk a little bit there um, about ways that we can become uh you know, proficient in crosswinds. And uh, Tom, I kind of wanted to go towards you on this one because I know you've been doing a lot of flight training uh, lately and been jumping in and out of different types of aircraft. How do you how do you cause yourself and your students to become proficient in crosswinds? Practice, practice, practice. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the only way to reach proficiency is to go out and do the physical things. Um, I agree wholeheartedly what Eric was talking about. You know, I mean, during this hiatus, we all weren't fine. There was, you know, everybody was just sitting there holding their breath, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. You know, um, I was telling my students and I was also doing myself, you know, I was trying to keep my head in the game as much as I possibly could. Um, and, and I did that by reading different things. Um, I was picking up different subjects. I would challenge myself to, to do different things so that I would keep learning. And then I would also chair fly. I kept myself the, the motor skills. I kept them, um, active by just going through and doing it. I mean, I, I would, I would just sit in the, sit in a chair and I would, I would literally, I'd go through a startup and read a checklist and I would go through and taxi a plane and I would do this all in my mind, just sitting in a chair in my office, you know, I'd go out and fly maneuvers and just go through and, and just remember how I did all that stuff. And yes, I did clearing turns before I did those maneuvers, sitting in a chair, you know, and just keeping myself active so that when I did jump back in the plane again, I wouldn't be like a deer in the headlights. Like, uh Oh, what am I doing here? You know, um, I was, I was literally scared of that. So I tried to keep myself active by doing that. And, and, you know, so the, the question about how do I keep a student proficient with crosswind landings is, is just that it's practice, practice, practice to do it in the plane, to do it on the ground, to study what it is that we're going to do when we get in that plane and, um, you know, how we're going to land that plane, what, what technique we're going to use to put the plane down in a crosswind, what is too much of a crosswind, can you land in too much of a crosswind? Um, I've taken students and I've, we've, we've attempted to land on a runway that had a crosswind that was beyond the, you know, rating of the airplane. We didn't actually land it, but you could see what it, they could feel it. They could feel what it was to run out of uh, control authority, you know, to where it's like, okay, there's no way to straighten this plane out. Let's go, go around and, and out, out we go again. And it's an eye opener, you know, like, okay, there's a reason they put that number in the POH, you know? So those are the things that a student will pick up on and, you know, they will hold on to, um, when they experience that firsthand, you know, it's something that they can take with them. And when I ask them to go home and do it, chair flying, go ahead and try that crosswind plane in your mind and see how it works that time too. And it's like, nope, didn't work there either. <laughs> so that's that's how I would stay. That's how I keep them proficient with uh, crosswinds and other things as well. You know, and as far as getting proficient in crosswinds, there's something else out there. There's simulators, and I I know that uh, going back to Eric, I think there's something coming up. And correct me if I'm wrong. If they still there was a, a crosswind simulator device. So Eric, uh, you're about to go to some event. I think I think it's online now, but. Do they still have, uh, and tell us what that event is, do they still have that simulator that helps you with crosswinds? Yeah, so uh, Redbird Flight Simulations, one of their first devices actually that they came out with was the crosswind trainer. And it's one of the funnest um, instructional activities slash friendly competitions you can have at your flight school. Um, It's basically a miniature cockpit that slides side to side on a rail um, and you you basically just approach over and over to land to see, I mean, you're scored based on um, how close you are to the center line and the longitudinal axis being aligned with the center line. Um, it's, uh, it is fun to practice and do. Um, it is It requires an extreme amount of patience um, because what you would accept and tolerate in an aircraft, the simulator still points out that you didn't do it right or you weren't completely right and so struggling to get that 
98, um, which I've never earned, but to get that 98, that 99, I don't, I don't, I'm sure someone has probably obtained a perfect score, but it is a fun device to play with. Um, I don't have one at Polk, but I've gotten the opportunity to get in one uh, several times. Um, I will say um, it is it is unkind to lack of proficiency. <laughs> it points out really fast um, how uh, how unskilled uh, you are in those conditions because again you you're not in the airplane you can't feel the energy coming in and leaving the aircraft and so you're you are having to rely primarily on visual cues and really to anticipate what the uh, simulated aircraft is going to do next. Um, I think it's a great device. Yeah, but the event you're talking about is uh, Redbird's Migration, their flight training conference that they hold every year. Um, it's probably one of my favorite aviation events every year, if not my favorite aviation event. I've been to every single one of them except one because I was really, really sick. Uh, but uh, yeah, this year is the first year it's being done uh, virtually. I'm excited to still get to participate and um, hold a couple of breakout sessions there. Um, and uh, it's it's great. It's it's primarily focused at flight schools um, and uh, flight instructors, but uh, I think anybody could benefit from the information. And the the speaker lineup is just incredible. Of course, we're going to hear more about that after you're done with it and hear a good report back on that one. Uh, but, you know, going back to that crosswind simulator, was it the funnest or the funniest simulator out there? Because... Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> have you flown one? I have watched it? people fly it. I really want to try it out. Oh, yeah. It looks like fun. Um, but I, I, you and I will, uh, you actually, all of us, we will get, we'll find one. Yes. And we'll compete. Oh, let's and do it. the the winner um, gets picked on in, in the next podcast instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to lose. <laughs> uh, it, it that that's actually and. Talking about that simulator, that's actually at the at the airlines we do that too, and we're always doing like really incredibly tough crosswind landings in the sim. Uh, so when you get those in real life, uh, you know, landing in a you know category one hurricane or whatever, you're you're able to do it. You're able to to land in, in really high winds. Uh, so that whole crosswind practice is really important. Moving on to the next thing, as far as controlling the plane, though, this is something I do get some pushback from some people that tell me, hey, you know, why is it really important that we learn these maneuvers and become proficient in these maneuvers um you know i have my own philosophy on that in that you know those maneuvers enable us to actually control the plane while we also are paying attention and controlling where our plane is going it's not just the actual airplane itself we're controlling but we also have to be cognizant of the world around us too and by and a real great way that we can drive that home is I always tell people if you look at some of these these base to final turns where people have spun it in or that type of thing, you know that person may have been controlling the plane really well until they decided to try to maneuver the aircraft based on an outside reference and they totally lost it and lost both things. They lost the reference, they lost the airplane. So to me, maneuvers are incredibly important. And uh, no matter what type of airplane you're flying, uh, whether it's a helicopter, you know, a, a light sport, a glider, a seaplane, it really is important to, to really practice those maneuvers. You know, I'd love to hear more from uh, some of the other folks here. As far as Bill, I know, Bill, we went over a couple of little maneuvers, uh, you know, flying around some of the lighthouses and stuff like that. And that's a great example in my mind of, of where we want to 
be able to do maneuvers proficiently, proficiently so that we don't actually cause ourselves any type of harm. But uh, what are some of the things that you do with your students and tell your students uh, as far as why you're doing maneuvers? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a really good example, Carl. You know, when we were doing that, we're, we're looking at two different reference points. You've got your outside reference, um, and you need to maintain the control of the aircraft as well, you know, maintaining your airspeed and coordination and all that. So that's, that's the skill that we're training uh, to do just exactly that, whatever your, your mission might be, so that you're not tunnel visioning on on one thing you may and, and it's very much like that base to final turn or you know our you know your photography flight or sightseeing flight or whatever it is you might do you can get tunnel vision on on the outside and um, miss the uh, the lack of control that's going on inside the airplane and you know lose lose speed or get uncontrol or uncoordinated or um, overbank something like that it's uh, very similar to the uh, distractions as well we have so many distractions with us in the cockpits nowadays with various electronics that are either built into the aircraft or we bring with us that um, are serving a very useful function. They're great, but you, you still need to be able to split that attention, divide your attention, move your attention from the outside references, which you're trying to do, the basic aircraft control references, um, and, and then across to the, um, to the distractions. I mean, I've seen it myself. It wasn't all, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll uh, kind of admit, I guess, it was a flight... Uh, a couple of weeks ago where we're doing just that um, messing around with some of the um, electronics in the airplane and came very close didn't actually happen but very close to a, uh, a possible situation with some airspace around here where we have some uh, complicated airspace so again had to keep uh, keep that uh, attention going between the visual outside and then the airspace which of course you can't see outside and then the basic aircraft control so is it the uh, yeah. airspace or the the people that make the airspace complicated? That's I, I was always said it's uh, the right. <laughs> but the one of the, you know it's amazing though how I'm glad you brought up the airspace issue because that's something we're going to talk a little bit about. You know you know not controlling the plane don't hit anything. That's kind of what we want to go into next. And uh, one thing I think that we concentrate sometimes too much on is is that airspace and the fear of actually violating airspace before uh, we actually control the plane. So it's that aviate, navigate, communicate thing, but aviate is always number one. Fly the plane. Fly the plane. Fly the plane. And and make sure that you continue to fly the plane no matter what. Uh, it's better to have a violation and talk about it later than uh, something else uh, to happen after that. So uh, anyway, no, if there's nothing else about controlling the plane, I really wanted to spend a lot of time on that because of the fact that I think we downplay the whole controlling the plane. And uh, something, you know, Eric said in the beginning, you talk to people about actually learning how to fly. It's not that. Uh, it's that, you know, complex, et cetera. It, can, it is difficult at first. It's like any new skill. But once you get proficient, once you learn that skill, uh, it really all the, the flying, 90% of it adds up to all these other soft skills that we have. Uh, so, uh, But we don't ever, ever want to downplay the, the physical skill of actually flying the airplane because it's something that we all need to keep and keep proficient at, both uh, crosswind practice, maneuvers, uh, that type of thing. So all really, really important stuff here, control the plane. But the, the other thing that's really important, if, you, if you're controlling the plane, that's great, 
but you can also control the plane and still get into a lot of trouble. And we see accidents because of this. And that's the big part of this. The other part of this discussion is don't hit anything. And there's a couple of things that I want to key on first, and that's, and then I want to bring some other people on to this whole topic. Is in my view, uh, part of that, and and I think we don't start here a lot of times, but I think communication. Communication really helps in this whole don't hit anything. Other people, other planes, etc. Whether it's communicating with air traffic control on the radio, announcing your position, communicating with the other person in the cockpit, that type of thing is really where we need to actually step up our game. It's kind of a weird thing to start with, communicating. But to me, it actually is something that's important. And it can be internal communications. You know, what am I doing? You know, and what's next? What's being in front of that airplane, like, like Eric was talking about, is really, really important. And we know that communications can hurt us. And one of the ways it can hurt us is when we communicate, like we're in the traffic pattern and someone tells us something as to their location and they communicate that to us, we start looking where? We look at where they told us they are. But if we don't see them, we still strain to look at where they are and they're not there because they accidentally said right downwind instead of left downwind. And, uh, hey, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I, you know, told someone that, you know, I was on a a left downwind uh, for runway nine. That's where I'm located and I'm really not. Uh, So that's where, you know, we have to actually realize that when we we communicate something, we should try to do it properly also. And that actually helps other people see and avoid us. And that is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, If uh, going on from that, one of the things I want to talk about too, is this whole see and avoid. Um, you know, one of the things I used to do years ago is I was a member of the Deaf Pilots Association. I'm not very good at signing, but I'm an Italian, so I can speak with my hands. And so <laughs> it made flying with deaf students, you know, a, a challenge, but a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things that they have to do is they have to see and avoid all the time because they can't listen. The communication part of it is really difficult for them because they can't hear, obviously, and they can't speak. So the next big part of that is see and avoid because most of us rely on other people's information through our ears. These folks don't have to do that, uh, especially if they're challenged by hearing challenged. And see and avoid is incredibly, incredibly important. So I'm going to ask some of our co-hosts here, and I was going to start with Sean actually on this one. As far as either you can tell us what you do, I'm curious what you do or what you teach your students as far as trying to see and avoid other aircraft. Yeah, you know, we uh, have a pretty busy practice area out to the west of here over in the Tooele Valley, and um, there's always airplanes, you know, doing practice uh, instrument approaches into Tooele, and then, you know, private students doing their VFR maneuvers out across the valley. And, you know, it's nice that we've got ADSB, we've got TIS, we can see those airplanes on our uh, on our screens, but course nothing beats just getting your eyeballs outside the airplane and scanning the area um, I remember one of the sort of first things that I learned about see and avoid was to kind of split the sky up into those segments and make sure that you're sort of scanning each segment of the sky rather than just doing a quick cursory looking around uh, for three seconds going yep I don't see anybody you're really making sure that you're looking out there you're focusing and and you're you know you're not just doing it as a chore you're actually 
you know, intentionally looking for anything out there that could be a threat. Um, I think a lot of people get so reliant on the technology, and that technology is great. There are so many more airplanes out there than any of us realize now that we have that technology, but that technology can never replace just eyeballs on another airplane outside the window. And so that's what I always uh, just want to emphasize is, you know, make sure that you don't get so reliant on that technology that you forget to really intentionally look across each little section of the sky and make sure that there's nothing out there that you're going to bump into. So in each of those sections of the sky, there's many different types of techniques uh, to actually look outside and look for traffic. And I know I'm flying a lot with people that are friends of mine. And some of the suggestions I make is, always, you know, if you start, start somewhere, start in front of you and be cognizant of where you're going to go next. Do you go to your left and go in little 10 degree increments or say off to your, your wing or past your wing to the left and come back to the front of the airplane and do it to the right side. So that's kind of what I do. Cause I, I know that what I'm going to hit first is probably going to be what's in front of me. I'm kind of curious um, what the see and avoid techniques. I guess Eric, since you haven't been here for a while, I'm going to ask you what uh, some of the techniques they teach at, at the college there or where you are at the flight school. Sure. Um, so, this is going back a, a few decades, but when I was in driver's ed <laughs> a long time ago, they used to teach this concept called defensive driving. And I don't know if they still teach that or not. Um, I don't know that they do because I don't see a lot of people doing it. But defensive driving was was see and avoid for cars, right? It was It was, yes, you're driving the car and you should be aware of what you're doing in the car all the time. But you need to be aware of what's going on around you. you. You need to have your eyes not just staring straight ahead down the highway, but you need to be looking at the lane next to you, checking your blind spots, looking in the rearview mirror every once in a while, even if you're not planning on changing lanes. You just, it's situational awareness, basically, but for cars. And so and maybe I wouldn't have learned that lesson, but I still remember I was, I don't know, I maybe had my license for a week. I was uh, driving on a four-lane road, and sure enough, went to put my turn signal on, emerge into the lane next to me, didn't see the car sitting in my blind spot, he honks the horn, scared me to death, scared me to death. And it was one of those, um, okay, you remember, you learned this in driver's ed, you should pay attention. So with see and avoid for me, I learned to fly in a very, um, very sparsely populated area. There were no other airplanes. Then I went to a collegiate program where there were tons of airplanes and one little bitty runway, <laughs> and, and you had you know 12 airplanes in the traffic pattern at the same time. And if you didn't know how to look outside, you were probably going to hit somebody. Um, I mean, there was a higher likelihood you would hit somebody than that you wouldn't. Then I went to fly in, at Peachtree to Cab in Atlanta with a three-story traffic pattern um, where you were almost certainly going to hit somebody or a TV tower or a building or who knows what. Um, so for me, see and avoid was just seared into my brain. My favorite technique, though, honestly, I, I still have a hard time um, with a position report from air traffic control or even if I'm just trying to look myself. When an air, Especially when you're in smooth air, it's very difficult to, to see that relative motion of the other aircraft. So what I tend to do if I'm flying straight and level for a long period of time in route or whatever I'll, I'll vary the, the, the bank of the wings enough, um, eff effectively like waving your wings to confirm, a, like in a Nordo situation, not really to change heading, but to move my wings so that it changes my visual perception outside. 
And that I find that that helps a lot with spotting uh, changing relative motion. I think it also helps us increase our own visibility when our wings are moving. It, it creates relative motion for the people who are looking for us too. So I don't know that that's really a, 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 a professional technique, but it's one that serves me well. As long as it works, right? And, uh, it, and that's what we do. We keep learning these techniques from people from their experiences. Uh, so see and avoid, really, really important. Um, one part of that see and avoid is using our technology sometimes to help avoid traffic. And that's where we're going to bring up this ADSB. Uh, what an incredible benefit this is. And one of the things that it, it's interesting because I have you know all these hours flying and I finally got introduced to ADSB in and uh, absolutely phenomenal i was just totally blown away and the first just an amazing technology the first flight the second flight i get up and i'm doing a cross country and i'm seeing adsb i'm seeing the aircraft popping up and i was like wow there's the air traffic third flight was the problem and this is adsb is an incredible benefit in that it enables you to have uh, a much broader view of the possibility of traffic outside my third flight is my, my attitude changed and I said, wow, this is just like flying IFR with the airlines. And I finally realized to my, after a, a little bit of thinking, and this is after the flight, there's something wrong with that statement, isn't there? And uh, I was wondering if anybody wants to kind of pipe in, it, it really isn't. It, it isn't like flying IFR because there's a problem. Not everybody's being represented by that ADSB on, and in my cockpit, I could be looking at some traffic out the window that may not be showing up on my screen from my ADS-B in. And why is that? But and and not everybody has ADS-B, so that's some one of the. It's just like with gliders, and you start realizing that no matter what you're doing, flying, etc., is that you have to continually look outside. So, uh, and. What I do realize that there's huge benefits with ADSB and huge benefits to seeing traffic, um, but I think I for a, for a little while, for a very brief moment, I started letting my guard down a little, and I really think that's that's not good. And I'm just wondering, has anybody else here on the podcast have you let your guard down because of ADSB? And try to someone you know be honest with me. Have have you found just like I did that happening? Uh, you know. Especially like Tom, I know you fly with ADSB quite. As a matter of fact, I think you're the one that introduced me to ADSB in the airplane. Uh, was it in the Arrow or that? I was just like, oh, you yeah, saw me. I was like blown it away. In the Arrow, and yeah. you, yeah, you were like, wow, oh, this is cool. <laughs> it was cool. And and you know, Carl, you're correct. And I've I've had the same thing. And and uh, I don't know that I've caught myself getting over trustful in it. What I've caught myself doing is wanting to get trustful in it and can't because of the issues that you have just brought up. Um, I have found that the system is only as good as the receiver that I have and the, and the information that I'm getting. And I too, I've seen, you know, um, I've seen aircraft out in front of me that weren't represented, you know, electronically. Like, you know, I mean, most of us are flying with four flight and, you know, you hook a good stratus up to it and you've got good ADSB coverage at that point. And, and you know, um, it's not, I, I have not found it to be perfect yet. Uh, not for me, um, you know, and I, I, 
I would like to be able to get to a place where I can look at the thing and, and trust that 100% that it's going to give me good information. But the see and avoid thing is still paramount. You know, being keeping my head outside the airplane and looking just for the fact that I have seen aircraft um, outside of my outside of my window that that um, weren't represented, and I've seen aircraft that were, and then they weren't, and then they were again. You know, they've they've um, shown up on there, and then they've gone away. So you know, I'm still trying to reconcile how that's happening. If it's something I'm doing, if it's a position that I'm in, if it's a way that I'm holding the receiver, if, uh, whatever the case may be, you know, I'm not saying 100% that it could be the system. It could be me too. I, I haven't reconciled that. So I'm not ready to go 100% trustful within the system. But yes, it is a huge benefit to what we're seeing. Just what Sean was saying before. When I first started using it, um, I think the first ADSB in thing that I used was the um, the Four Flight Scout. I bought one at the air show. You know, they they were reasonably placed, and I thought, heck, let me throw that in a plane. And man, I was scared to death. How many people were in my practice area that I had never seen before? You know, and it was just wow, this is incredible that there's that many planes out there that you know, I wouldn't even take into consideration, you know, most of them were miles away to where I probably couldn't even see them in the first place, but it, it was an eye opener to how much was out there. Um, and that's, that's about where I'm at with it. Yeah, it is an eye opener as to how much is out there and it is a wonderful tool, but yeah, try not to, not to get lulled into that because, uh, you do that sometimes, or I have where you get lulled and say, Oh, this is so safe because of this. Uh, and you're like, mm, not, not good. You know, you have to kind of stop yourself. It's hard not to sometimes. Um, you know, the other thing with ADSB is that you have to figure out where it is in relation to you. And it actually can show up on charts that we have now in some of these incredible, you know, glass cockpits and new airplanes. But another thing that I think people don't use enough of is charts. And that's something that maybe because I'm kind of old school is that I'm always pulling my charts out. And I am impressed. I will say, Eric, when I went over to the college the other day, I saw people actually holding charts. I'm not sure if they were just doing that for my own edification. I'm hoping yeah, that they Yeah, we told actually, him you were coming. I figured. So. <laughs> it's like, here comes Carl. <laughs> here, show him a chart. He doesn't know, he doesn't know how to use that electronic Even stuff. if they're expired, just get them out. <laughs> chart like, he likes to see, he likes to see charts. But isn't that something that you guys do? You actually train on, uh, at more so than most places, I think. Uh, I could be wrong, but it seems like you guys train on charts more than, than most I've, I've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, so uh, there may be a time when I change my philosophy on this, but right now, for private and for instrument, I require our students to learn uh, charts um, and technology together. So I'm not quite sticking the mud enough to say you can't have ForeFlight because, again, I think it is a useful tool, and I I believe that we should be teaching you know proper resource management, not you can't have this. Uh, at the same time, you have to know if ForeFlight is giving you information that is accurate and correct, and you wouldn't know that if you didn't know how navigation works. Um, and so I'm a big believer in um, fundamental chart skills, the whiz wheel, <laughs> I mean, all of it. Um, and I, there are a lot of people who are like, nah, come on, Eric, you got to move into the 21st century. And again, I'm, I'm fine with them learning it in tandem, um, but I still think there's a place for understanding um, how navigation actually, the, 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 the science behind it, the math behind it, um, so that you know if your technology is giving you accurate information or not. 
And if the technology fails and you have no resources, then you have to rely on those charts. And that's And when you left your iPad on the dash and you forgot about the whole, like, you know, it gets really hot and it overheats and now you have no floor flight. Um, I mean, do you even have a paper set of charts? Um, and mo- many people don't. Um, and it's, it's weird. I, I, Carl knows this. I think you guys know this. But I, I still get to fly a Kinger 350 as a reserve pilot, which means I don't get to fly it very much. So when, when I get called up and I'm, I find myself sitting in a 350, whether it's you know, my leg to fly or it's my leg to, to monitor, um, it is uh, it, constantly, I'm, I'm okay, what's, what's going to come next? You know, trying to stay as ahead of the airplane as, as I possibly can. Still fly that airplane with charts. Um, there are four, I no, yeah, four iPads in that airplane and a set of charts. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it, it, and that's maybe a little over redundant and crazy, but um, you'd rather what is it the phrase you'd rather have it and not need it than you know need it and not have it. There you go. You know, one the things that I thought was strange is when the airlines finally went to no charts at all. And but they have all these redundancies, and those charts are still charts of just an electronic format. But if you just have one or even just two sets, it's good to have a third somewhere that's physical. Um, and uh, you know, realize that we may have like four iPads in the airplane that all have little charts loaded on them, plus electronic flight bags in the plane that are attached to the aircraft. But I really in any airplane that I fly, that I've owned, that I've been in a club with, I always have a set of charts of where I am in the seat behind me so that I can actually grab them if I don't know exactly where I am. And I think that's really important as far as not hitting anything. Understand how to read those charts and also read them accurately for collision avoidance with terrain but also obstacles. And that's something that I think we really need to go back to. So next time you get a flight review, I really challenge you to try to do that. That's for sure. Um, when we're talking about going to just the charts and also air, we, this kind of goes with aircraft uh, control but also not hitting anything, is, is your plane a challenge to control or require additional training? And by that, I mean some of these planes I see people jump into, like, say, a, a, I don't know, a, a 210, uh, uh, or a, uh, if you're twin, 310. You're out there, you're, you're sitting there flying this airplane that has way beyond your skills, and you, fi- you hire an instructor. And one thing that happens, I find, is a lot of guys get really, really distracted. And the reason I'm bringing this up is a recent incident where I was out at the airport and one of my neighbors was talking about this brand new aircraft he he bought and he was just flying a 172 and it was way above his skills and the instructor when we came when they came back he kind of pulled me aside and told me how you know if it wasn't for him in there and this person just was concentrating so much on the controlling of this airplane he totally forgot about navigating and all the outside world so if your plane is a challenge to control or does require some additional training to become proficient, uh, one of the things I challenge you with is get the proficiency or possibly, and uh, I recommended this in his case, is get another airplane. You know, if it's, it, it's not fun and it actually can be very challenging and might be kind of maybe beyond your skill set right then and there, and you may not have the time to actually become proficient in that. So... 
having an aircraft that is incre- is tough to manage, maybe it's the systems that are tough to manage, whatever it may be, uh, you know, maybe that's time to, to move on so that you can concentrate more on the navigating and looking outside of the airplane. And I think that's, that's incredibly important. Uh, I know all of us as instructors have been in an airplane and seen that, uh, you know, move forward. I mean, it's just incredible that we've seen people that just, they get into an airplane that seems only a small step from where they are now, but then it goes to something that's way beyond their skills. So how do we how do we do that? How do we get to the point where we can help people in an airplane that they really want to buy, um, but it's way beyond their skills? How do you do that, Eric? It's it's it comes down to transition training. I mean, you know this from the airline world, Carl. If you change airframes, you have to go to differences. Um, and even even some some aircraft, even between variants of the same model, you still have to go back to differences training. Um, it's not a full type rating. Sometimes, sometimes it is, depending on what the changes are. But you have you have to go through. You're a professional airline pilot. You still go back through differences training. When you change seats, you go through differences training. And it's and I know that. Like we think about, you know, well, that's professional aviation. That's how that works. If you're used to flying an analog 172 and you get a 206 with glass, you should be getting some transition training um, for sure. I mean, just because it's legal to get your instrument rating in an analog 172 and get in a G1000 172 the next day and do an ILS to minimums doesn't mean it's a good idea. Um I mean, it's it's legal. You need no additional training or certification to do that on paper. But what I have seen just from previous instructional experience, let's see that so much at the college because we force our students to do transition training when they change airframes. But you'd you'd see somebody who would come in and they were so proud of themselves because they had upgraded to this new aircraft and they were just chasing the airplane. And then you're doing you know, all this duel with them, trying to get them proficient at flying the airplane because their goal was, um, well, I want to fly this airplane solo. And it, I don't know, one day this light bulb just went on and it's like, instead of trying to just start with a blank slate, we should really sort of use that same um, airline military concept of differences. Let's start with what's the same and then teach to the differences um, and then provide a transition to that airframe. Either uh, it's faster, it's retractable gear, um, it's just more complex in terms of avionics, whatever it is. But let's focus on those differences and train to those because at the end of the day, a 172 and an Airbus are still subject to the same laws of physics. And the, the, the physical act of that airplane moving through the air is the same. So if we just, if we focus on what do I need to know that makes this aircraft different than the last one I flew and focus on training to that, I think we can be safer in the national airspace system. How about transition training from a Cessna 172 and one with a G1000 in it? Um, would you recommend transition training there? Absolutely. I mean, that's effectively what we do. So like my students, for example, do their private pilot training in a six-pack, an analog six-pack. When they move to instrument training, they move to a 172 with a G1000 panel. So the very first thing they do is go through differences training and they learn the G1000 because an airplane's still an airplane. It's still a relatively low performance GA training airplane. One's a Piper, one's a Cessna. So there are some operational differences with the aircraft they have to learn too, but 
they spend the first 14 lessons of the instrument training curriculum in the simulator, and they learn procedures, and they learn knobology for the G1000. One, because it's way cheaper than learning that in the airplane, and two, because it's a much more effective classroom. If they get behind the airplane, I can push pause, and we can create a teachable moment, as opposed to, we've got to fly around for another 20 minutes for me to set this up again so we can practice. Um, it saves the students money, and the, the success speaks for itself in the fact that when they do transition to the aircraft, 99% of the time, it's a one-to-one -one transition. There's always going to be some some little, well, I didn't, I wasn't quite ready for that or whatever, but it's not just pull the entire rug out of from under people, which is what we traditionally see in general aviation. It's like, well, I've got a single-engine private pilot certificate, so I can fly anything that's single-engine. Um, when flying it, m maneuvering it through the air may not be the biggest concern. It may be the technology, it may be the speed, it may be um, maybe the, just the complexity of the aircraft in general. It may be its aerodynamic characteristics. So it's, and it, the best example of this in the industry that I've ever seen is the, the way that Cirrus manages transition training to a Cirrus for the first time and between different model variants inside their their fleet of aircraft, I think that's a, a great best practices example of not we're not starting over with your private pilot certificate. We're we're doing differences training so that you can transition to this new aircraft, and that's the focus. I like how you left off with that example, Cirrus. Um, incredible transition training they do there, and uh, and proficiency training and. The, the thing that I think we need to learn is that we do need to transition to new aircraft and we need to get quite a bit of training. So if you've been flying a 172 for most of your life and you decide to go to a Piper, uh, there's some transition training there, uh, low-wing Piper, uh, fuel pumps, little things like that that can cause uh, a day to go sour just because you may have forgotten to switch tanks, that kind of thing. Excessive runway float. <laughs> yeah, everything like that. I mean, it's just it really it is it is important to when you're flying anything new to do some type of transition. Um, and like you said with the airlines, I mean, we fly one aircraft that's you know 25 feet longer than the other aircraft. You have to make sure you don't hit the tail when you take off or land. Those are the type of things, uh, just like we do with going from a 172 to even flying a Tomahawk. I mean, that's lighter on the controls or a light sport. Uh, some transition training is is required there, uh, going from something heavier to lighter. Uh, so everything it really does require that. You know, one of the things I want to talk about on our last part of this is is for those people that are flight instructors out there listening. You know, what when do we finally take control of the aircraft while we're trying to train people? You know, how to control the plane and not hit anything where where's that fine line on uh, i know we talk about it a lot in landing i think we don't do that enough during maneuvering and one of the things that i'll just start off with is i go to a much higher altitude when i'm doing maneuvers with my students because i want them to experience as much as they can without me taking control because if I if I'm closer to the ground, I'm probably going to take control a little bit earlier. Uh, the other part of that, I'm flying in Florida; it's cooler up there. But that, that has nothing to do with controlling the plane. But I'm just wondering, you know, what what do you do as a flight instructor um, when you know you've crossed that limit uh, and you're trying to teach people aircraft control and not hitting anything, but you want them 
you want them to, to have some impact, but you don't want to impact anything. So uh, I'll start off, Eric, since you're, you've been back, let me start off with you one more time. And, uh, you know, what is it that you do with your students? How do you determine that point? It's actually interesting that you bring that up now because I had just covered this with our flight instructor class last week. Um, the importance of the last teachable moment. Um, new flight instructors tend to take the controls before they should maybe, um, or they let it go too far because they just, it's hard to find, you know, where is that moment where I need to step in? And so we're either overly conservative or, or we're overly dangerous. And so the important thing I think to teach and to practice as a flight instructor is the last teachable moment. And that moment is going to be different depending on the circumstances, your proximity to the ground, the experience of your student, the overwhelm, the workload of your student. And it's our job as flight instructors to be aware of all of those things. When we become complacent, we may miss the last teachable moment. Or we may jump in before we're needed and the student doesn't get the learning benefit. It's letting it go to that point where teaching now has stopped. And it, you could be 300 feet above the ground on final and still be at the last teachable moment because the, the, the student is done. And we have to know that. We have to see that. And we have to be able to respond to that quickly and, and effectively every time, which is a high expectation. Um, I'm, sh I'm, sh <laughs> I'm sh sure Sean is very familiar with preparing for the last teachable moment. It's that you know when you go into the CFI checkride that your examiner is gonna, it's always going to be on some, some maneuver when you're not expecting it or where you're looking the other way. They're going to do something insane you know, to see if you're going to take it. What if I take it too quick and what if I let it go too long? And in reality, the check ride is just that. It's, it's, a, it's a spot check. It, the reality comes when you're in the airplane with all those different students um, and all those different experiences. It's, but it is, it's being, uh, it's being in the moment as the flight instructor and looking for that last teachable moment to me. Yeah, there's been very few times I've ever had to take over as an instructor. Close to the ground, yes, but um, getting to that last teachable moment, you really don't want to push it too far, and that's, um, that's something that I think we all need to focus on and think about quite often. I think, uh, our, I think our newest, Sean, I think you're our newest CFI in the whole group, I'm pretty sure, um, is this something that you've had a challenge with during your CFI initial training when they started teaching you about uh, when do you take over from the student? Yeah, I mean, it's been something that, that was always in the back of my mind. You know, any time that uh, anybody sort of simulated a mistake, it was fairly obvious, fairly, you know, uh, benign. Um, but you hear stories, you know, you hear about the the student, you know, in the pattern, getting you too slow on the base to final turn or, or things like that, or you get distracted and you don't realize the student's done something crazy. And, um, or, you know, you see the student making the mistake and you have to decide, like you guys were talking about, where that threshold is of letting the student walk into that corner before it's time to kind of come in and stop them from, from taking things to a place that you don't want to go. Um, and so as I'm, I'm, I still haven't had my first student yet, uh, with the whole COVID craziness, I'm, uh, getting ready to get back into the cockpit, hopefully with some students. But that's one of the things going to be top of mind for me is, uh, learning exactly how to fine tune where that is that you, you want to let the student make mistakes to learn from them because it's a great learning experience so long as it's safe. 
And I think that's uh, one of those things that comes with experience, and and um, hopefully I'll be able to learn really well exactly where that line is to let them have those really beneficial learning experiences, but obviously keep them safe at the same time. Yeah, so at first you just be real conservative with your students, and then you work in from there, uh, and, and that's my advice to any new instructor, that's for sure. Uh, so great. I can't wait till you're out there instructing uh, more often, Sean. I'm very excited about that, and I uh, can't wait to get back out to Salt Lake City area to go fly with you in the mountains, and Let's that'll be a lot of fun. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Right, hopefully soon, uh, especially Yeah, you're going to love it, Sean. I mean, <laughs> it's the, it is the most terrifying and rewarding thing you'll ever do in your flying <laughs> career i promise you that tom can tom can speak to that so can bill oh yeah <laughs> you know with all that said i mean it's really it really is rewarding and you know the fact that we talked about this as a topic control the plane and don't hit anything i really wanted to go back to basics because i know it sounds like a silly title but it is it should be the main goal and i'm glad we've gleaned a lot of really good information and you know glad we had eric with us to to come back and and actually put forth some of the information especially from university environment and uh and also from all the folks here, the co-hosts here, that we're all flight instructors and we're all constantly learning too. So that's something important to realize. Uh, just remember, no matter how experienced you are, you're always, always learning. Uh, so uh, anyway, let's move on to our after landing checklist. Our picks of the week. And our picks of the week are next. So let's start with our picks of the week i'm going to go ahead and start off here uh with our pick of the week this is somebody i had on uh on uh aviation careers podcast is the author of this is may k Beeler. it's called buccaneer and it's the provocative odyssey of jack reed adventurer drug smuggler and pilot extraordinaire now there's the part about him being pilot extraordinaire that was really cool about this one and that's why i wanted to bring it up because it talks a lot about the airplane itself uh, and the limits of certain airplanes. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, unfortunately, it's in the environment of them smuggling drugs uh, from the Bahamas. And it was uh, one of the things that really was uh, I, another part that I really took away from this book wasn't the fact of the cool things about the different types of airplanes, which ones had the best carrying capacity. So if you're somebody looking at trying to carry a lot, that's really interesting. But the, the really cool flying they did uh, out and about in the, uh, in the islands in the Bahamas. And as you know, a lot of folks know, I was out there in the Bahamas for quite some time. And uh, the descriptions of the runways and the environment and the water and the colors and the people and the amazing places you can see are phenomenal. And the fl the airport they flew off of was called Norman's Key, only 210 miles from the U.S., but it's like you're in a whole different world. And that's something that I wanted people to take away from is that amazing challenge of flying over to the islands. This might spur you to go over there. There's another part of this book. It's kind of an adult book, and uh, you know, it's not something you want your kids to read, but it uh, talks about drugs. It talks about that lifestyle um, and you know, it really, it's an interesting uh, read as far as, uh, you know, the Bahamas and how it's, Bahamas has been a transshipment for all sorts of things through many centuries, uh, but it, it really that part that's, um, is kind of fascinating to understand the system too, or uh, as far as, you know, the legal system, et cetera. If you're uh, interested in airplanes, it's a, it's a wonderful read, it has some really cool 
uh, different pictures. The other reason you want to read it, at the end, there's an incredible twist that I didn't see coming and was was just really phenomenal and interesting. But I highly recommend the book. I highly not recommend you doing what this person did in the book uh, because of the fact he got into a lot of trouble and went to jail for the rest of his life. But very interesting uh, flying, that's for sure. And from there, we move on to safety with Bill. Bill, what is your pick of the week? So so that those drug smugglers are probably not using ADSB either, right? Uh, maybe in, yeah. not out. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to spot that. So, um, yeah, on that note, so we we were talking about not hitting anything, and one good place to not hit anything is on the surface of the airport. So we've you know long been talking about surface uh, surface events, runway incursions, taxiway uh, incursions, and the FAA has actually put out a really clever runway safety simulator tool that you can just run in your web browser. And it gives you different little scenarios of taxiing on airports, little sample clearances, and you, you kind of play a little game with it with the simulator and uh, see different scenarios for how to help avoid surface incursions. And uh, that's uh, just put together by the FAA and the link's in the show notes. So that's a runway safety simulator. Cool. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. Sure. Next pick of the week is Sean. What is your pick of the week? Mine uh, is uh, actually the new airport here in Salt Lake City. Um, they uh, have been working on this uh, this new terminal for um, six or seven years now, uh, and they just opened it up this last week. Um, they're moving everything over from the old uh, terminals that have been here for decades. Um, anyone who's very familiar with Salt Lake City knows it's been growing like crazy the last 20 years or so, and it's it's kind of far outgrown what was here before, and this new uh, airport is just gorgeous. It's still the same existing runways, but all the terminals are, are brand new. Um, and it's, it is absolutely beautiful if you've got the opportunity to kind of pick Salt Lake as a layover if you're flying or if you're coming here even better. Um, like in the, uh, the main entryway, there's a, a sculpture along both sides of the, uh, the walls way up high above you that's made to look like a southern Utah slot canyon. Um, all things like that, they've really taken a lot of design cues from Utah itself. And if you get the chance to come through, it's it's sparkly, it's shiny, it's brand new. Uh, it's it's a good time to kind of walk around and check out a bit. Yeah, it's actually, uh, if you're going to go to the airport, check that out. But also, the really cool thing about uh, Salt Lake City, it's not far from Heber City, Heber Valley Airport, one of the really coolest little airports I've seen in a while. Uh, there's actually, I think there's still an aerobatic team that flies up there. And I know one of the fastest people uh, at the Reno Air Races, uh, I think it was the L-39, he's actually based out of there too. So check out the airport, maybe on a layover, stay a night, run up to Heber City, go fly in the mountains. Uh, the high UNS, all that, that area is beautiful, beautiful area. But uh, anyway, thanks for that, Sean. Moving on to the next pick of the week is Tom. What is your pick of the week? Yeah, so I was, uh, before we started the show, I was complaining to Carl how hard it is to get a pick of the week these days because uh, we all think alike, you know. I was <laughs> I was thinking, oh, we got that air show in December. Oh, already taken. Oh, I should do something on runway incursions. Oh, Bill already got that one. So I start thinking, where else do I want, not want to hit anything? Is in the sky. So, um, And where are you most likely to hit stuff in the sky? Is it in special use airspace, MOAs, restricted areas. So I picked the um, the FAA's um, special use airspace site. And to, um, to 
go back and look at that to see what's going to be active, what's not, is like the perfect place. And it, it dawned on me because uh, I was going to fly with a friend of mine one day and uh, we were going to go across Florida. And I said, well, we should probably go check the MOAs and restricted areas. He goes, oh, we're just going to file. We don't have to worry about it. It's a controller's problem. And yeah, I, there might be like some truth to that. But um, at the end of the day, I've also had controllers that have put me close to sticky situations. And uh, the only reason I knew that is because I educated myself before the flight about what was going on with airspace and stuff like that. And, and you can do that here. So um, it's a great place to go. So it's sua.faa.gov. And, you know, wherever you're flying, take a peek at it beforehand. It just helps you know what's going on so you can see and avoid and not hit things and not let people hit you too especially use airspace really important thanks for that tom sua.fa.gov it kind of rhymes so go check that out uh last but not least the person that we picked on the most tonight is eric what is your pick of the week my pick of the week is counseling from <laughs> all of the all of the abuse that carl is hurled my way no um so i had a uh, had an instrument student uh come up as instrument students often do saying you know eric this this holding thing man it's really got me you know i, I get all turned around i i can't can't figure out where i am where the hold is and like everybody else um i sent him to the same site um that i'm about to send you to so um uh the backseat pilot dot com is a great repository for sample lesson plans for flight instructors but they also have some uh, giveaways in the resources section and one of those is the holding procedures guide and it, it is in my opinion one of the simplest most direct um no pun intended uh, approaches to um how to visualize a hold um and how to enter one and so there are also several different scenarios uh, with little boxes. And the whole point of the worksheet is to teach you to draw the hold so that you, if you're a visual person like me, so that you can visualize it. And so you get the holding instruction, you draw the hold, including um, the entry procedure, and then you go to the next page and it's got it drawn out so you can see if you got it right or not. So I think it's a great review tool um, and it's, uh, it's one of my faves anytime somebody asks for a little extra practice on holding. Oh, thanks for that, Eric. I really appreciate it. And uh, that's our picks of the week. Also, don't forget that uh, there is going to be an air show at Sun and Fun. It's going to, depending on when you're listening to this, you might be actually able to go to the Holiday Fly-In. That's in December, Sun and Fun Holiday Fly-In. Best way to find out about anything going on over there, flysnf.org. I also highly recommend heading out to liveatc.net slash snf. Uh, you can listen to some of the past interviews and some of the most recent shows that we've done. Uh, also at uh, the Flying Festival, the car show, we're probably going to have a live event there, a video event. So hopefully we'll see you out there. Uh, Stuck Mike Avcast crew and also at Aviation Careers Podcast, we're always out there helping people and helping people, you know, move forward in their, their flying life. And if you do appreciate this content, uh, consider becoming a patron. It's stuckmikeavcast.com slash patron. And every dollar that's given goes towards a dollar towards a scholarship guide and giving that away. And that's going to be something that can help other people stay in the air. And that's really important, especially during this time period. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Remember, control the plane. Don't hit anything. Most importantly, get back up in the air. Hopefully that we've inspired you to go fly. Keep safe out there. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. 
Members of the Stuck Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.